Welcome to The Painter's Dialectic. I'm your host, Josh Green, a painter and art educator living in New York City. And today is an exciting day. Me and Dylan are going to begin a series of dialogues called What is Truth? Now, if you listen to us this far into the podcast, you're probably also a truth seeker. And we have the very brilliant Dylan on here to help us navigate the field of study called epistemology. Epistemology is the study of knowledge and truth. We will go down all the avenues and hopefully somewhere new. And remember, don't just listen to the podcast, participate in it. Like, subscribe, share our content, leave comments, interact in whatever way you feel comfortable. And remember that we have a Patreon page with behind the scenes content. You can subscribe with different tiers and see how we come up with these ideas. If you'd like to study art with me, you can go to greenatelier.art and sign up for lessons. If you'd like to see our Instagram page, it is the Painter's Dialectic. My Instagram page is Josh Green Artist. If you'd like to check out my website and see what all I'm up to, you can go to joshgreenart.com. Dylan, back for another episode. How have you been? Good. How are you? Doing good. I would like to begin a series with you. Me and Kenny have been mm-hmm. doing a series about elements of painting, so that would be fun to do one with you about truth, or also known as epistemology, the study of knowledge mm-hmm. and truth. And I don't think we need to get too intense to it. It would be nice to lay this out as a way where people could reference it and learn about the different fields of epistemology on their own, but we can cover the basic ideas. And Mm -hmm. it may be interesting for you guys to know that I initially started studying with Dylan in order to learn about epistemology. And I have some of my writings from that moment. So I'd love to read uh, something to you that I wrote a while ago. So what a luxury it is to have the time to contemplate not only to have the time, but also to have the energy necessary for it. In our age of increasing distractions and demands, in our time of pandemics, ecological catastrophe, and social outcry, it's hard not to be mentally fatigued, or worse, emotionally numb. The distractions of our smartphones, the iPhone, are a relief I seek to evade thinking, even if it's only temporary. But through thinking, I get a handle of it all. I'm able to end the disorientation and sensitivity through accepting and understanding the circumstances I find myself in. What is more vital to my sense of security than truth? And what is a better expression of its absence than anxiety? I pause to contemplate truth not for leisure, but for its necessity. So what do you think about that, Dylan? Yeah, I think you raise a very good point that perhaps the beginnings of epistemology comes from thinking. I think the beginnings of philosophy surrounded what sort of things we can know. And that sort of tied in and led to a very natural question, well, how do we know? 
right? That these things are what we know, <laughs> right? It doesn't take that much of a leap to consider, okay, if these are the ways that we know about these things, how can I trust the way that I acquire information? And this sort of thing goes all the way back to Plato. I think we've all heard of sort of Plato's cave, which is very similar to concepts explored in The Matrix, for instance. And the whole setup is that you have these prisoners sort of chained up in a cave, and all they see, right, there's a flame, a roaring flame going on behind them, and all they see are people sort of passing by and casting shadows on the wall of the cave. And for them, that is their reality, that is the extent of their knowledge. But of course, Plato raises a point, is, or Socrates is said to have raised the point where, how do we know that this, that reality is really as it appears to us? How do we know that things aren't just shadows on the wall, that there is still more to know and more to discover sort of out there somewhere else? If we only we can unbind ourselves and sort of look out there and see what's out there, then that would be great. Uh, it's not entirely clear as to how to do this. Obviously, the philosophers thought, well, it must be through some sort of philosophical inquiry. So the idea would be that one of the people would break free from their chains and they would go out and they would see the sun for the first time. They would smell the grass for the first time and they'd come back. And interestingly, Plato makes a commentary on what that would be like when the person who is free comes back with all this information and he tells and he shares his information with the others, they respond by beating him to death. So they don't take it very kindly that they're being told that the images and the shadows on the wall aren't really real <laughs> or don't reflect reality as it actually is. So epistemology really is to question how do we know the things we know? To what extent are we actually able to engage with reality or are we severely limited by, for instance, our senses and our technology and our way of thinking? Does that sort of make sense? Yeah, I love uh, Plato's Allegory of the Cave. And if the listener would like to look that up, that's in book seven of the Republic, of Plato's Republic. Mm. Yeah, it's such a beautiful metaphor and it's, it's lasted the test of time. You know, and everyone's referenced it. So it's good to take a moment and look at it. But, you know, one is that we begin as someone chained up in the cave looking at shadows. And we consider these shadows real. And then once we unchain ourselves, we're able to leave the cage and actually engage with the real world. So I think just that alone is interesting. You know, what are these shadows that he's referring to? What does it mean to be unchanged? And what is the actual real world above in the light? The movement from the darkness of the cave to the light of the day and then bringing that light back. Mm -hmm. And of course, they get killed. <laughs> <laughs> They're perceived as insane, right? Which is quite obvious mm -hmm. as to why. Because if you're used to seeing a particular thing over and over in your life, then we're not that good at accepting new ways of looking at things or the possibility that we may be wrong. We quite take, we take, usually take offense to that. Um, and that response mm -hmm. is quite normal. Socrates's or Plato's approach to how to unbreak from the chains comes from almost like the beginnings of rationalism. It's looking at many examples of things in the world and asking oneself, what is like the proper version of this? So, for instance, 
just to begin with definitions, right, you see a lot of different types of trees, you see a lot of different types of plates and cups, right? Plato asks the question, so what is exactly a tree? What is the exact definition of a tree? What is the exact definition of a cup? And he says that, well, if we take a look at all of these examples of cups and we synthesize, we rationalize, and we, can, we think to ourselves, okay, what is the essence of this particular thing, of a particular tree? There we go, we have uh, a genuine piece of knowledge about uh, trees or cups. And he thinks that there's this ideal, right? This, this ideal, you know, what he calls Plato's idealism, where there exists somewhere. And it's unclear as to whether he genuinely believes this to be a physical somewhere, but there exists somewhere where all of these concepts, these, all, these ideal objects, the true essence, the true form of these objects exist. And a lot of people, especially theologians, have taken this to be almost like heaven. Right? Heaven is where the ideas of God reside, right? That God has the original blueprint of all of these different examples um, of these things. What do you think about that approach from rationality? So I believe that would be called idealism, mm. right? The more I go on, the more I learn, you know, the more I think I'm becoming an idealist. Mm. And I like, I like the idea of, of something perfect. You know, in, in, in geometry, mm. like Euclid's geometry, which was considered a sacred practice for a long mm. time, I, I heard this idea of thinking beyond senses, mm. right? That actually, when you explore a triangle or all these, these geometrical mm -hmm. proofs, you're thinking beyond any of your senses. It's something purely mental. Mm -hmm. And I never really thought of that before, but it, it really is something highly abstract. Mm -hmm. And so when I hear about Plato's ideal, um, I know he was a big practitioner of geometry, mm -hmm. and I believe even above his academy it mm -hmm. said no one who doesn't know geometry may enter yeah. right <laughs> so i believe that maybe the origin of if if his idealism is that mm -hmm. there's a world of forms beyond sense perception mm -hmm. beyond sinking through senses mm -hmm. right yeah and of of course geometry are like the perfect representations of the ideal of the form because we know that there is no such thing as a genuinely perfect geometric shape in the world right there's always some flaw and yet we have this idea we have this ability to synthesize from all these examples of, of these flawed examples what it would be like if these shapes were genuinely perfect right and then we can mm -hmm. come up with a lot of fascinating sort of relationships right pythagoras's theorem right euclid's theorem like the ability to just be able to say the shortest distance between any two points is a straight line. We just know this to be true without, you know, even though it's impossible to really test, right? We can't test it. Um, not really, because there's so many examples, so many different ways, right? We don't know if there is another way to reach that point. That is a shorter, right? We can't even conceive of that. It's like trying to think of a new color. But interestingly enough, the, when you mentioned the senses, his student, right, Aristotle, sort of moved away from this notion of the ideal. He thinks that the way to go about knowledge is to look here, right? Is to look on the ground. It's 
the ideal is mm -hmm. to be found in the objects, not elsewhere, not in this weird place in another world. It is here, right, within the objects themselves. They are displaying already to us their forms. And so there's that famous sort of uh, painting or one of the, you know, Plato's pointing up, right, to the world of the ideal. And, mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, Aristotle's pointing down. It's like, no, no, it, it, the reality, the truth, it, the truth is here, right? If you're going to go about knowledge, yeah. you should start from sort of on the ground. And so that's why he sort of was a very prolific sort of natural scientist as well. Wrote a lot about, you know, he did dissections, he sort of investigated animals because he thought if there's any knowledge to be found, any truth to be found, it would be through almost empirical investigation. Right. A scientist's approach, as it were. And that, and that painting that Dylan referred to is by Raphael, mm -hmm. and it is called The School of Athens. It's a fresco in the Vatican. And I actually saw that one in person, but right in the center of it, you can see Plato and Aristotle. Plato, of course, pointing up, Aristotle pointing to the ground. Aristotle is kind of, he became the primary focus of Western tradition, mm -hmm. right? Leading to a, a materialist outlook. And, and Aristotle, like, one, he set the foundation for logic mm -hmm. that we still use yeah. today. He said the foundation for um, how we classify mm -hmm. animals, mm -hmm. which is still used today. It's it's incredible the work he did yeah. um, has lasted the test of time. We still use mm -hmm. a lot of things. Yeah. yeah, I think Plato kind of fell out of vogue. He was more popular yeah. with um, Christian theology for a while. Mm. They decided not to get rid of him. But Aristotle, I think he was even referred to as the philosopher mm. for most of Western history, right? Yeah. Wasn't he the philosopher? Yeah, I think it's, well, it, this is more to a stylistic sort of difference because Plato wrote philosophy in mm -hmm. terms of like stories and dialogues, right? But Aristotle actually wrote lectures, right? So his his writings are comparatively less entertaining, but they are written in sort of the, the style that we would associate with philosophy, not pure academic, right? Pure investigation. There's n less of the, the drama and sort of the conversational sort of style that Plato used. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a very good reason why he fell out of favor is because a lot of things he got wrong, <laughs> as as you you know as expected. But he was also uh, very ahead of his time in terms of his approach, right? Even his even though his conclusions may be misguided, his approach is definitely sort of remarked and sort of considered to be very important. Obviously, we've refined the scientific method over the years, but this idea of obtaining knowledge through direct observation is quite fascinating, is that it's suggesting that philosophy cannot just take place in your home, in an armchair. You actually have to go out into the world to learn, to know. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, as, as you mentioned, it sparked a whole sort of... Uh, fan base from theologians right trying to justify uh god through these means right they didn't want people to think that you know belief in god was something that was just meant for peasants and meant for the uneducated they really wanted to elevate the status of religion that you could ground the belief in god in something logical and something philosophical hence uh, theology that it was more than just fanciful thinking that there was genuine you know, yeah, thinking going on there you know St. Uncas, Augustine, St. Aquinas right they really tried to mm -hmm. philosoph you know use philosophy to prove the existence of God um, interestingly 
that sort of brings us, I guess, the next big breakthrough that we often talk about when it comes to epistemology is the insight that our senses and our rational, rationality can be limited. And that came from, you know, a mathematician and inventor, right, Descartes. And he sort of noted that so far we've been trusting our minds, right, to do all the conceptual work, and we've been trusting our senses to do all the observational work. But what happens if, you know, they're wrong? which is a terrifying thing to consider, mm -hmm. right, that he does in his meditations. He asks a very important question is that what if what we see, taste, hear, and touch, what if those things are just fed to us, right? They're not actually reflected, <laughs> reflective of actual reality, but they're sort of like shadows on the wall. That, again, it's a more, even if you've escaped your chains, if you've gone outside, all everything you've seen has been given to you by some sort of evil demon. And he thought, that's quite scary, but at least I have my concepts, at least I have my geometry, at least I have Euclid, right? Which is what sort of played mm -hmm. a false back upon. And he says that, what if even that's wrong? What if an evil demon's convinced me that somehow that the two, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line, and then the three interior ang angles of a, of a triangle result in 180 degrees? What if even that... I'm wrong about even I'm misguided about my fundamental concepts about Euclidean <laughs> geometry because a evil demon could do that he could convince me right that that is the case so what can we possibly be sure of right he famously came up with a test that if something can be doubted then we don't truly know it so he is the first mm. person if you like to really set the bar of what we consider knowledge sky high that only certainty can grant us what we would be considered knowledge. Everything that could be doubted mm -hmm. doesn't count. So he often uses the analogy of like a basket of apples and he's sort of examining every apple. And if there's any suspicion that the apple could be rotten, that he would throw it out. And he famously came to the conclusion mm -hmm. that there is only one thing, really, there's only one apple left in the basket. And that is, I think, therefore I am. Like, even if I am to be fooled, right? Even if it's just shadows on the wall, at least, there is something that is being fooled, right? There is a thinking thing. What do you th think about that? <laughs> oh man, I love uh, Descartes' meditations. I think it's probably one of my favorite philosophical mm. reads. No, the, the first half of it, I really connected mm. to. I loved it. Now when I think about my experience, I think everything has to come from a mental place first, mm. right? Because actually, I don't have a direct contact with the mm. world. The world is simulated in my mind. When you think about that, uh, it's really disturbing, but actually, whatever I decide is real, whether it's internal or external, mm. comes from, for lack of a better word, data. Mm. I get sensory data or internal data, and then I look at that data and I find patterns, mm. and these patterns are information or knowledge. Yeah. And then here comes morality. From that information, I then make decisions. And then the quality of those decisions I'd call morality. Mm -hmm. But really, you know, what's the difference between my life and a lucid dream? Mm -hmm. How do I know the difference? I think that's what uh, Descartes gets to. And really, I don't know. Right. <laughs> and of course, he's <laughs> really. not alone, right? Even before him, right? Even yeah. in the East, there is a particular philosopher called Zhuangzi, which is a Taoist philosopher. And he famously made like the sort of the statements like, how do I know that am I just a man dreaming that I was a butterfly or am I a butterfly dreaming that I was a man? <laughs> how could it tell the difference? <laughs> right? When you're in the dream, it seems awfully real. 
yeah, for, you know, whatever my dumb philosophy is worth, I've come up with the idea or, or through all the ideas I've read, mm -hmm. I don't know if I've come up with it, that uh, reality is, is simply equal to information. Mm -hmm. You know, like the idealist perspective I was saying, mm -hmm. well, my subjective experience has objective outcomes. Mm -hmm. What I think in my mind affects my reality. And things I get in my dreams or my imaginings, I can turn those into paintings or objective things. So that's why I'm having a bit of confusion. Like, I think materialism and idealism can work together mm -hmm. if you're flexible. Mm -hmm. I don't think they have to conflict, but maybe that's just getting too far out. No, maybe no, no. I mean, I've should... spoken to philosophers yeah. who consider them materialists, mat -ideal right? So they're material mm -hmm. idealists, right? And they combine sort okay. of the two together. So that, that sort of movement does exist. This sort of thinking you can see like the cultural impact it has had right in the film such as the matrix mm -hmm. a lot of people play with this idea of the brain in the van like what if we are just sort of this thing being plugged into a machine and it's feeding us all of these experiences right. what would it be like and then of course there are other sort of questions to do with the meaning of life is like if we were given the opportunity the chance to plug ourselves into a machine and we could design beforehand what sort of life experiences you would have and you'd forget about all of this and you're capable of designing the perfect life would you do it right would you knowingly enter into a false reality making yourself believe in it for the sake of sort of pleasure and sort of in the matrix the idea is that some people will say no but of course one of the traders right do end up opting to go back right he you know he'd rather go back into the matrix eat steak right drink wine than live in the horrifying reality where none of this exists um would you sort of rechain yourself back into the cave if you knew that that reality wasn't beautiful oh yeah but i think i'm pretty extreme <laughs> but... I would totally do something like this. And really, you know, um, there are physics theories, like one is that our reality is a projection on the surface of a black hole, like a hologram. There's a lot of things like that, but don't think it's too far to believe that that reality may be something simulated. I know that's kind of dumb, but I'm an artist and I can be dumb. That's one of my luxuries as an artist is I don't have to be right. I'm beginning to believe, you know, this, this very well could be a simulation. Mm -hmm. Why not? If we look at the progression of technology mm -hmm. and our ability to simulate now, if you had entered into one of those simulated realities we have mm -hmm. now and you had no recollection of what was outside mm -hmm. of it, how would you know? Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned something about sort of perceiving all of this sort of reality as sense data, as information, right? And... and mm -hmm. Hume, who comes after sort of Descartes, has an issue with Descartes' sort of proposition, right? Because he has a issue with his particular sort of approach was to, again, go back to sitting in a room and thinking really hard and trying to obtain knowledge in that mm -hmm. way. He agrees with Aristotle that if you are to know anything, it has to be through empiricism, through observation, through looking at the world. You can't think your way to genuine knowledge. And he has particular issue with some of the conclusion that Descartes concludes. One, he doesn't think that just because you can be something that is fooled, that something is an I, right? He disagrees that it has mm -hmm. to be a unified subject. We can't just be like a bundle of different perceptions. And his argument is that if you really mm -hmm. consider your own thoughts, 
right? You have a lot of thoughts coming in and out of place, all in these ra random orders, right? And all you really have direct perception of are many, 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 many thoughts. You don't really have a direct awareness of what Descartes calls like the I, the subject. It's sort of like, you know, looking at your own eyes directly. You can't really do that or sort of a knife cutting itself. Having a direct perception of the self is sort of impossible. All we can really have access to are these sort of like a theater of all these characters coming onto the stage and coming off the stage. So he thinks that if there's any knowledge to be gained, right, it's through empiricism. And that's the best we can really do, right? Hume has a rather sort of, if you'd like, skeptical or pessimistic view to knowledge is that actually, right, if there's anything to be known, it has to be through the empirical senses. And he admits that as limited as the senses are, that's really the best we got, <laughs> right? So it could be a simulation, but we really have no way of answering the question of whether there is. It's sort of one of those unfalsifiable and verifiable claims. So do you do you sort of agree with Hume then that like if there's that the beginnings of our knowledge, like even our conceptions have to come from a starting point. And that starting point really comes from the, the moment when we're born, we're exposed, or maybe even before we were born, you know, when we start to have some sense of the world, right? When we start to hear our mother's voices, that's where we begin to build our knowledge base, right? I do, I, I agree with Hume, but I think we can even go farther than that. Yeah, I think you must check the realities. You must be scientific and logical in order to have good knowledge. So that's the danger of idealism, is if you're never checking the reality of a thing, you can get lost in delusion. Mm -hmm. But I think if you do take that perspective of empiricism, mm -hmm. that is also limited by a lack mm -hmm. of idealism. Right. I think it takes imagination, uh, the flexibility of the mind, and even irrational mm -hmm. faculties or transrational faculties right. to go beyond to make hypotheses about what could be possible. Yeah. And when we look at physics, it's the biggest breakthroughs, the biggest paradigm shifts were by young 20-year-old mm. guys sitting alone in the room and reimagining everything. Mm. But that idealist point allowed them, like Einstein imagining riding on a wave of light, mm. that allowed him to come up with a new theory of materialism mm. that is more accurate. So I think they go hand in hand, like uh, like you're saying, the material idealist, mm -hmm. whatever that yeah. was, that fusion. Yeah. But interestingly enough, Hume famously wrote sort of about two counter arguments to the foundations of our physics and our sciences. He once wrote an argument against the idea of causation, stating that empirically speaking, we don't ever really observe causation. We only ever have direct obser empirical observation of correlation. We see things happening in sequence with one another, but it is a conceptual leap, right, by scientists to assign causation, right? We see a ball, right, it rolls towards them and it hits them. All we see is a sequence of events, but really we don't actually see the causal power, right, of the ball hitting the other. That's us doing that link, that relationship, <laughs> right? So that's one huge blow to modern science because all modern science functions off the notion of causality. <laughs> there will be no scientific <laughs> laws and principles. And so as empirical 
as science is, in reality, science is not really empiricism. It can't be because there are certain things that cannot be justified by observation alone. And Hume admits this, that if we were to take this really, really sort of precisely, then we cannot justify causation or any form of causal law through empiricism alone. There's a level of subjective reality operating here. The other one is, again, a huge one of the fundamental sort of foundations of science is that he has a problem with induction. This idea that previous accounts of how things are are supposed to be in any way right a notifier future sort of events or future discoveries so famously there's the example that if you observe right in the world mm -hmm. and you've only ever seen black swans right then you will as a scientist say something like all swans are black you know <laughs> from observed patterns you'll come up with a general conclusion right but that's not because all swans are generally black it's just due to the fact that you've never seen a white swan Right. And so in the problems of philosophy, Bertrand Russell wrote mm -hmm. something very similar about, you know, a hen or a turkey, I can't precisely remember, sort of thinking to itself, you know, every day the farmer comes and, you know, feeds me, treats me well. And by the law of induction, by scientific law, right, it means that he will do this forever, that he is a good person until, right, of course, one day he does not come with food, he comes with an axe. Right? So science is incapable of, by induction mm -hmm. alone, to genuinely make claims about laws of nature. There is no empirical foundation for having theories or laws. That's, again, that's, uh, that's us. That's us doing the work. That's us doing the conceptions. But the good thing is that science is a self-correcting mechanism. It's that if we do observe a white swan, Science rectifies itself. It says that, okay, I will now change my mind. I'll change the theories. But that, of course, means that, technically speaking, right, the laws are always open to falsifiability. And while most people would consider that a weakness, science considers it a strength. Right? Karl Popper, right, philosophers of science, often state that one of the best things about science is the fact that it can be falsified, it can be verified, it can be tested. Right? And so scientific laws and theories actually say something like this is that none of the evidence that we can observe contradicts the laws and theories that we have that is the most science can say and that really comes down to hume's observation that we are actually filling in most of the gaps when it comes to our sort of trying to seek knowledge right trying to put knowledge together that we are actually the masterminds of our sim our own simulation if you'd like Definitely. God, what, yeah. that, that, what Hume said yeah. about correlation, it's pretty threatening because when I think about it, most of Hume knowledge mm -hmm. is the knowledge mm -hmm. of, I click this button, cause, and then I know the effect. Mm. But everything in between that process, no idea. I think that's most people's reality, like this iPhone or whatever phone. Mm -hmm. I click a button, it does something. I have no idea. Right? All, mm -hmm. that, all human knowledge really cares about is cause and effect. But some assumptions mm -hmm. science make is that the physics mm -hmm. we know about is even throughout the universe. We don't know if physics mm -hmm. works the same in another galaxy or on the other side of the universe. You know, another one I've been thinking about lately is how do we know that our mm -hmm. universe isn't nested within another mm -hmm. universe with different physics that may interact mm -hmm. in strange ways like 
what we see in quantum mechanics. I don't know. We we really don't know much. Mm. <laughs> so you know, maybe Socrates is right. Like the only thing we do know is that we know nothing at all, right? The bar is so high. It turns out if you sort of look into knowledge a little bit further, right? We like to say I know this, I know that a lot, right? But it turns out upon examination, we don't really know much, you know, other than sort of that we are we are in some form here. That's all we can say, right? We can't even be absolutely <laughs> sure what form we take. But in some way, we are here. Um, Kant goes even further. He takes, so, he, so he's a big fan of Hume, and he's a, he, he also recognizes sort of the differences between the rationalist and empiricist. And he thinks that real, like in reality, all knowledge is really both, right? So he takes even further that it's not just a problem with induction. It's not just a problem with causality. There's an issue, really, with the foundations of empirical observation. Because he realized that although all subsequent knowledge we gain is from empirical knowledge, they don't make any sense without the right framework. And that's not just saying sort of having concepts of a car and things like that. That's not what he's saying. He's saying something even more fundamental. And those are the concepts of time and space, right? Mm -hmm. To have any empirical knowledge of anything, they reside in some way in space as stuff, right? And of course, they reside in some way in time. And we can't see either of those things. <laughs> There's no empirical basis for time and space. So our conceptions of time and space must have come preloaded, right, into our sort of faculties, maybe biological, maybe something else. But there is something there, right? There's something deeply ingrained, if you remember all the way back to Plato's cave, something deeply ingrained in the functionings of the shadows on the wall that we cannot escape, right? Because without those conceptions, our empirical observations are meaningless. They have no context to reside in. They have no space and time to reside in. But without the empirical side, our concepts are blind, right? If we just had mm -hmm. time and space and nothing to fill, right, then that would also be empty. So we're sort of, we have to, any knowledge has to be a combination of these two aspects. They have to be a conception of some rational conception and some empirical observation. It's inescapable, <laughs> which is, again, a, a quite horrifying observation, quite sort of almost revolutionary point to make. The real, and of course, we know this, right? We've moved away in science of thinking. We used to think, at least Newton used to think, that there is such thing as objective space, and we sort of assumed that there was also objective time, that it would be universal, that these things would be the same. There would be genuinely everything mm -hmm. would operate at the same time, and yet. Right, relativity shows us that actually Kant is was right. There is no objective <laughs> time and space. They're all relative in the sense that they exist only as a description of the relationship between matter or energy in the world. Right? They have no independent existence, as it were. And so people often ask the questions like, if if space, if the universe is expanding, what is it expanding into? Right? And of course, mm. scientists will say, well, you've actually got it wrong because it's not expanding, because space is nothing. Space is just the relationship between two objects. Right? It's the objects in the universe that are expanding. The reason why we know the universe is because we see things moving away from each other. Right? So it's objects moving away, right? but there is nothing they move into. We just know that they're moving away. 
that again is a mind boggling. <laughs> it's so <laughs> counterintuitive to think about because everything that we see tends to operate in some space and we take that space quite literally and quite important. Like, you know, housing is space, real estate is space, everything is sort of residing in space. And then some scientists tell you that actually all of that space that you think is real are just relational concepts, right? Between objects. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've been a little skeptical of space-time mm. in my current experience, and I've had experiences where those things have failed. Mm. These are French experiences, yeah. But one, I know that time is made fluid by the mind. Mm. Just like many things the mind makes consistent through projection. Mm. But I took a drug once that disrupts that. Mm. And what I got was a lag in my experience. Mm. I would just get the perceptions as they came. Mm. So it would be like, I think, turn my body. Right. And then I get the different perceptual moments. Mm -hmm but it was a drag. Right. So my mind would be turned, but my body wasn't. Mm -hmm. Also, in a car wreck and other traumatic instances, mm -hmm. time stopped yeah. for me. I remember this one where I was in the ocean and uh, the waves stopped moving. Right. And also when I was in a car wreck, everything froze. Mm -hmm. And then space is interesting too, because in the epistemology of painting, mm -hmm. I'll just call it that, mm -hmm. When we are making an illusion of space, right. painters train for years mm. in realism and academic to see the flat 2D version of our perceptions. Mm. It takes a lot of untraining to do it, but I, I got to a point where I could see light coming into my eyes without the projection of concepts mm -hmm. as just a mosaic of shapes of light. Mm. And when that happens, you see your vision as just a map mm -hmm. of light rather than something with space in it. Right. And then when you make a painting, you now know the perceptual tricks to fool someone into the experience mm -hmm. of space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very um, disorienting. Yeah. Of course, <laughs> space-time in a scientific context is very different from the perception of time and space, mm -hmm. right? So Einstein famously said that, you know, in terms of our personal perception of rel relativity of time, it's like classically boredom. Right. If we're bored, then mm -hmm. time seems to go like a million times slower. Right. But if we're mm -hmm. at a bar chatting to a pretty girl, then time seems to go really, really fast. Right. So there's the perception mm -hmm. of time and space. And there's also time and space as a sort of quantity or a description of matter in the world. Right. There's a slight difference in our own individual human perception of time and mm -hmm. space as well. And interestingly enough, right, you also, you know, pointed out a very interesting thing about the perception of time and light. Right, which is often uh, related to time, space, time, is that how we can see things is usually due to light, right? It's entirely up to light. Mm -hmm. And we perceive sort of different frames of seconds as compared to a pigeon. So that when we watch mm -hmm. a film, it seems smooth to us. But if a pigeon were to watch a film, it would be like a slideshow. They were just PowerPoints. Mm -hmm. right? They're just, they don't understand why it's so entertaining. They don't see the movement because movement in film is really an illusion. It's like a zoetropic effect, right? It's many, many frames put together and it gives the illusion that there is fluidity, that there's flow, that there's movement. But in reality, there's separate frames that's played really fast. But a pigeon would not see the flow because their minds operate faster in the sense they perceive light faster. And so there's that essence of what you mentioned of the delay, right? When something affects mm -hmm. the very equipment 
that you're using to perceive time and space, to perceive light, that creates a literal sort of lag. And of course, we see this all the time, you know, in mirages and illusions, right? We recognize, for instance, that when we perceive things, we know that light travels faster than sound. We know this, right? Which is why we hear, right? lightning but we've already seen the lightning and then we subsequently hear it um which means tells us that our brains are off are constantly adjusting because we see everything as if it was to sync up but we know that the speeds of these things traveling are at different times so who's doing the syncing right what is doing the syncing of these two different speeds right <laughs> one is much 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 faster than the other light is much 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 faster than than sound but somehow our brain doesn't have that problem, doesn't have that desync of sound and sight. Somehow our brain knows that if we adjust in this way, it's like the best audiovisual engineer in the world. It manages to put, so that if I drop a cup, I immediately know that it's the cup that is dropped. I don't hear the sound first and then I see. Of course, it only works to a degree because when it comes to larger or larger delays of these things or greater speeds and greater audio, then we do start to see the gap. We do see, right? We do perceive that the brain failing to reconcile the gap, right? When it comes to lightning and thunder, for instance, then we do see that happening. After Kant, it seems that we sort of moved away from how to approach knowledge. It seems that modern epistemology has less to do with how to, you know, how we know the things we know and more concerned with the question of what is knowledge? Right? Because it seems that when it comes to the methodology of acquiring knowledge, we're pretty stumped. Right? There's no further to go. Right? <laughs> it seems that science is taking that road that as good as we've got seems to be this. Right? But mm -hmm. if, okay, if we put that to one side, then what is it exactly we're supposed to be acquiring in the first place? What is this mysterious knowledge stuff? And so there's the idea that knowledge is some sort of belief. Right? In order for us to know something, we have to first believe it. Because if we don't believe it, then we don't really know it. Right? That's the, that seems to be the idea. If we say that I know something, you know, the idea is that you believe it in some way, that you've accepted this as true in some fashion. But it isn't good enough. Can you think that if you just believe something, that doesn't count as knowledge. Right? You must need something more. So you say, okay, what does it have to be? Right? How about if that belief is true? Right? If the belief is true, then that counts as knowledge, right? which is okay to start as a definition. Of course, it has practical problems because then the next question is, okay, what is true? <laughs> right? And of course, then it comes back to the methodology of trying to verify and falsify things. But let's, again, leave truth to one side because that could be an entire series on its own. <laughs> but let's assume that if things are true, if they're sort of verified to be the case, then true belief is knowledge. But people think, well, that's not really good enough either, because sometimes you can believe something to be true just on accident, right? It's just so you're completely wrong about your reasoning, but your conclusion is correct, <laughs> right? So for instance, I, I say, I believe, right, that um, my cup is going to smash tomorrow because I wore a particular pair of socks today, right? Mm -hmm. It may really genuinely turn out to be true that my cup does smash tomorrow but my reasoning to get to that conclusion is completely wrong the fact that it has smashed has really nothing to do with me wearing a particular pair of socks that's just coincidence right it's correlation not causation so people often say well then is knowledge then justify true belief right if we have a good reasoning 
right? And it and we genuinely believe in the conclusion of that reasoning, and it is true, then that counts as knowledge. What do you think of that sort of definition? Does that is that knowledge for you? Justify true belief? No, I, I really went with that process through that process when studying with you. I I ended up like, wow, I really don't know anything that's true. And I started looking at belief. I was looking at um Kierkegaard what's it, fear and loathing? Is that is that that it? Um about faith. But um belief is not truth. Belief it stands in the absence of truth, right? You don't need to believe in mm -hmm. something if you know it. So that's not good enough either. And then I kind of came to a, a sort of practical viewpoint. But I'd really like to give you right now a moral dilemma that mm -hmm. I think suits this. And um, me and Dr. Cooperman were talking about this, the physicist. Mm -hmm. So we can doubt anything. For good reason, as we pointed out. We can doubt everything yeah. that scientists do, because they do it through induction, yeah. not even deduction, not the most level-headed type mm -hmm. of logic. So, the moral dilemma is global warming. Mm -hmm. With everything said, ultimately, global warming comes down to our best evidence, and maybe mm -hmm. even a bit of belief, but these mm -hmm. actions have enormous consequences if we're wrong. Mm. So how would you handle global warming? Yeah. So this question would be applied epistemology, right? And so there's, there's a slight difference between epistemology proper and applied epistemology. The reason why there's a difference is because when it comes to applied epistemology, it doesn't really matter where things are genuinely true or not. It only matters in our experience of that truth. And so we only have to be concerned with when it comes to doubt, whether it operates within our common sense. So G. Moore famously wrote sort of a defense against sort of radical skepticism, right? This radical doubt of everything. He says, well, we have to stop somewhere. And he wrote a paper called The Defense of Common Sense, that when it comes to our lives, when our experience of life is concerned, we do not take everything to the epistemological or metaphysical degree. We are we should only really consider things as far as it, you know, resonates with us, right? With common sense. Undoubtedly, we will get things wrong, but we don't have any better option either. So another example of this is the problem of free will. As far as science is concerned, it seems that there is a huge indication that if things were all to operate according to physical laws, that there is no such thing as libertarian free will. But the compatibilists say that doesn't really matter because as far as your experience is concerned, that's free will enough, right? You deliberate, you contemplate, you, go, you, you think about this, you weigh about that. How is that not in experiential terms, the phenomenology of free will? And so scientific understanding the scientific approach right the evidence that we have for global warming is as far as our experience is concerned the best shot we have right and of course you know the consequences of us getting it wrong right in the sense that okay it turns out that it wasn't that big of a problem right we don't end up sacrificing that much if we were to try and sort of save more energy or find alternative methods of generating energy, right? Produce less waste, right? But if it turns out that it is correct and we do nothing, 
that's quite problematic. So I think in that sense, right, you might, people might say, well, that, isn't that just sort of speculation? Of course, right? It's just weighing sort of the pros and cons. And if you genuinely, if people generally have a huge doubt about the science of uh, climate change, they might be inclined to be convinced by this almost Pascal's wager type of bet, right? Of what is possibly worse. I don't like that type of reasoning, but it's the sort of reasoning that might work for skeptical people, mm -hmm. right? So Pascal used that wager, for instance, for the proof or the belief of God, right? Just in case he exists, you're better off betting that you believe in him and following his commands than betting that just in case he doesn't. Because if you follow, right, you don't really sort of lose out on much, right? And in case he exists, you get to go to heaven. Right, but if you, in case he exists and he and you don't follow, <laughs> you don't believe, then you are suffering. You are condemned to an eternity of hell. Right? I find that reasoning problematic. Right? This sort of betting, uh, one because there's severe. It's severely counterintuitive to the evidence. But if evidence is an issue, then I can see why some people might be, con you know, uh, persuaded by that. Of course. Global warming is more than just climate change, right? It's also how we sort of treat one another, or how we treat sort of the healthcare system, how we treat other animals, right? And so regardless of one's position on the rising temperatures of the world, we can see that our current practices, regardless of whether it contributes to carbon in the atmosphere or, you know, the greenhouse effect, is already problematic. Mm -hmm. Right, the fact that we pump our, all of our trash in rivers and into the sea is, isn't good for anybody. Like if you are you know, a person who loves seafood, you have to recognize that if you pump a lot of trash into the ocean, that's going to come back and bite you in the ass. <laughs> right? So even if you are a huge meat eater right, and you're a, a, you know, a huge lover of seafood, our current practices are not consistent with the belief that you want to preserve good food for your own sort of own pleasure. Even if you're a pure utilitarian, you seek pleasure, right? Mm -hmm. Our current practices don't reflect that line of logic. And so there's even regardless of climate change, our solution is still going to be the same, right? Regardless of your position, whether you are sort of a vegetarian or not, whether environmentalist or not, it seems beneficial uh, from a purely sort of you know, almost utilitarian standpoint, that is a good idea. So there are many good reasons, right? There are many reasons to approach climate change in a certain fashion, right? But of course, some reasons, like back to sort of justified tribute, some reasons are obviously better than others, right? The climate change, you know, to a degree, is sort of better supported by sort of scientific inquiry, mm -hmm. right? Of course, we can never be certain about anything. People often note that, oh, you know, there's always been climate change throughout history, right? And that's true, right? But that, again, comes to a fundamental problem that Hume points out, that we don't know for sure whether something is correlation or causation. Well, we can say that if something has strong correlation, right, we would probably be, common sense-wise, inclined to believe that there's something going on there, that something's causing that phenomena, right? Um, that there can be some explanation as to the correlation. And we do have an explanation, right? We do have a map, right, of how 
sort of particles, how chemicals work. We know their properties, right? So it's not an independent observation. It's not just, just so happens that it's hot, just so happens that it's cold. We also know why it gets hotter. We also know why it gets colder, right? So it can be explained as well. Um, but yeah, you raise a very good point. Technically speaking, it's sort of the problem of God, right? We can't prove anything for certain. We can't say for certain that the flying spaghetti monster does not exist. If there is, could be a very, very small chance that it genuinely, that we've been, we've got this all wrong and it's really all down to the flying spaghetti monster. But for practical purposes, right? Karl Popper, the, uh, the logical positivist said that if it's a claim that is unfalsifiable or unverifiable, right? That is beyond reproach, then for the sake of common sense and for the sake of our experiences, right? It doesn't really help. It doesn't really contribute anything, mm -hmm. right? So if we were to just leave it, right? If we just let climate change happen or we let global warming happen and we just continue on our practices, that's fine, right? Which is what they're proposing, right? If we don't believe in it, then we would just carry on living the way that we do. That's absolutely fine. But of course, the real test would be sort of your experiences um, of the world, right? We'll continue to have, you know, larger climate events, natural disasters. Uh, and of course, it is severely unjust and unfair in terms of the effects of climate change because they tend not to affect those who are better off. <laughs> they tend to affect those who are worse off. And so really, I mean, I can see why there is no real sort of personal selfish reasons to believe and to change your lifestyle, right? Because it's, it, it just, it's built on this notion of empathy and concern for people <laughs> who are in worse positions, right? There is no, you know, if we take Pascal's wager to be the reasoning, to be our justified true belief, then I think I agree, right? If that's your reasoning, then you really don't have any good reason, right? If you don't plan to have any children, if you don't really care about people who are living in, you know, worse off places, um, and your only conception of whether something is good or bad is purely from your individual uh, place in the world, then yeah, you don't, you don't really have any reason. Right? That's actually true. And a scientist would have to agree with you that fundamentally, that if you do not share certain values, right, back to Kant again, that our conceptions also play a part in our justifications. What is justified depends on what you consider to be important. Right, so belief in climate change and global warming isn't really just down to the science. It's down to many, many factors, right? It's down to whether something is even doable, whether we want to address it, does it affect other people's interests, right? The numbers are irrelevant to the climate change debate, right? So I think the debate around climate change shouldn't be about the statistics and numbers, which is how the approach has been. Right? Because we very quickly recognize that no amount of numbers from the people who do believe that there's a climate change happening and there's global warming happening, none of your numbers are going to convince anybody. You're talking past one another because one side, they're speaking of what they consider to be important. And the other side is speaking about, you know, look at the numbers, look at the data. It's just not a relevant argument. Um, I sort of on that topic of justified true belief, I recently saw an interview from Big Think about sort of a world champion debater about how, you know, debating and critical thinking, these skills 
that he has learned in debating critical thinking can really be really useful when it comes to discussions like this. And the first thing you people have to do is to find some form of agreement in the beginning. You can't just talk about two separate things and expect any resolution to happen, right? Justific any amount of justification has to begin with the same starting points. We have have a, some sort of agreed upon uh, system, and usually, we have to have an agreed upon goal, which is why philosophers want to define things like knowledge. Is because if we can't agree on what parameters we're defining this particular thing we're arguing about, then we'll never get to the end of it. It's there's just a language problem, right? What we consider to be true or false, right? Again, a lot of the debate around climate change is just a debate about language, like what you consider to be certainty, what you consider to be falsity. But of course, we don't have any way of determining something to be absolutely true and absolutely false. So the gray areas in between really comes down to a wager. Is believing this more beneficial to me or is not believing this more beneficial to me? What is the cost and benefit of me accepting this? Um, so I do not believe that science is completely inhuman in the sense that some people think that science is a purely objective endeavor. Of course it isn't, right? You like science because you believe that there's some value in the discovery of, of a description of the nature of reality. That in itself is already a value judgment. And so it's very, very difficult to make epistemological claims without really acknowledging that behind every epistemological claim is a value judgment of what you consider to be important. So like in the definition of justified true belief, the reason why people have mentioned belief is because people put a lot of weight on belief. They think belief is valuable, right? The reason why someone then says, actually, belief isn't enough, it has to be true, is because then another group of people think that truth is really important. <laughs> and then another group of people think, well, that truth is, is important, but it, you know, justification is also important. And so Kant is right that when it comes down to it, there is no independent justification of why justification is important. We just think it's important. Um, and so knowledge and epistemology and all of philosophy, I think, has that level of human bias sort of embedded into it. Why, there's a reason why most people are what we call pragmatists and compatibilists, is a recognition that any endeavor, any sort of endeavor into the knowledge questions are inseparable from what you prioritize and what you consider to be important. Rationalists prioritize reason above all else. The empiricists, you know, prioritize observation. But if you ask, why is one better than the other? There is no real answer to that, right? That is separate. There's no real answer to that that is separate from you think one is more beneficial than the other, right? So if you, it's like, the reason why, like, kids are natural philosophers because they ask why to everything, right? So if you were to ask, you know, if you were to say, oh, so we believe in science, science is good, they would say, well, why? Because, you know, we have all this evidence to back this up. But why is that important? Now, why does that give any, why does the fact that evidence supports it mean anything or make, you know, mean that we should believe it, right? Oh, oh because we can make predictions. Like, okay, why is accurate predictions any measure of how good something is? 
right? And then we'll say, okay, these predictions allow us to do all of these things, right? We can produce rockets and technology. And so, so why is that good, right? Because if we do these things, it's good for us, right? But how is it good for us? Well, ultimately, it just comes up because we like it. <laughs> it gives us pleasure to have these things, right? The greatest impetus for scientific discovery, especially space discovery, was not the joy of discovery, but because there was a Cold War going on. <laughs> we wanted <laughs> superiority in space, right? So we're really, and there's a reason why NASA doesn't get as much funding now, because there is no war to be fought in space <laughs> anymore, right? So, you know, ultimately, when it comes to the justifications of why we pursue knowledge, right, it comes down to a value question. If we try and separate the value question and pursue like definitions, like justified true belief and things like that, or we talk about, okay, what is the best way to organize knowledge? Is it foundationally? Is it, you know, we build bottom up, right? We have some definitions we can agree on, upon and then we work our way up from there or we go coherent, right? We have a system of knowledge that is consistent with one another. As long as they don't contradict, that's okay. That's science, right? As long as there's nothing about our theories that contradict each other, that's fine. But of course, it's inevitable because even in physics, we know that quantum mechanics contradicts with relativity. We know the very big stuff contradicts with the very small stuff, right? We know this. And so our work is to try and make them consistent, right? And the idea is that the best theory is the one that can make these things consistent, that reality is consistent. But of course, that itself is an assumption. Why must reality be consistent? Why can't it be both? <laughs> right? So that, that's a, like a huge question in the, in, the, in the philosophy of science as well, that we assume that consistency and if things work with one another, that means that they're probably true, right? That it can't be a coincidence that they happen to be consistent. But of course, why not? So children are the best philosophers, and which is why we find them very annoying when they ask all these <laughs> questions, because they make us sort of question our assumptions of what we think we know. And so... I think whenever anybody, any parent has a child, they don't like questions from children because it forces them to have the same existential crisis that Descartes probably had when he came to the conclusion <laughs> that actually we don't really know anything. What if this, all of this stuff comes from uh, an evil demon? What do you think about that? <laughs> well, that was a lot. Epistemology is a complex, crazy forest mm. that you can get lost in. But... Yeah. I think ultimately the, the destination I arrived at is mm -hmm. one, the information stage I was talking about. Mm -hmm. By studying epistemology, I can get better information. And then what's the mm -hmm. use of that? To make higher quality decisions that benefit me and everyone else. And I think that's what you mm -hmm. mainly were pointing out. And that's why, you know, I think it's important to do this series with you is mm -hmm not to get people lost in the metaphysical, but to help people mm -hmm. make better decisions, especially as we've been pointing out, yeah. people in position of power are trying to retain that power. Corporations have massive mm -hmm. incomes and they will go to links to use disinformation, mm -hmm. propaganda, to secure their position, right? Mm -hmm. That's the whole point of reflecting on dialectic and critical thinking that we're doing. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good way to sort of sum off sum off this sort of first like, the episode of the series is really the, the thing that we're trying to get across, right, by exploring a little bit of the history is that all of these people trying to do epistemology comes down to one sort of 
conclusion, right? Some one beginning point is that we can't be certain of anything, <laughs> <laughs> right? There's a there's a very good reason why we encourage critical thinking, not because we're bored, right? Maybe that's a bit of that, but of course, we critically think because we just can't be certain, mm-hmm. right? And if there's anything you that people can take away from this first beginning point, is that in order to do epistemology, you can't be certain. Because if you're already certain, there's no epistemology to be done, <laughs> right? If you're already convinced that the shadows of the wall are everything that reality has to offer, and that's real, then th- there's no impetus to break off the chains or to do anything else. Well, thank you so much, Dylan. You're an incredibly smart guy, and always learn a lot from talking to you. Uh, thank you so much to everyone who listened, and especially thank you to everyone who is supporting the show on Patreon. We really appreciate it and allows us to continue making this meaningful content. And remember to be critically creative.